Hello and welcome back to all my darlings. The app is now working again. Thank goodness. It was really sketchy there for a second. Oh, I do have some of those. Now when you open a drawer, open a junk drawer and find something you need. That's always a good sign. Oh, well, darn. Okay. Okay, I don't need that. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right. Um, we've been doing some spring cleaning at our house. We've had 10 years. We have had stuff in tubs for 10 years. So we, after, um, we are now an empty nest. So we decided to do some spring cleaning and get things rearranged. So this is going to be a nice break from that. We're pretty much done, but... Okay, so we are on chapter one of Angel in the Forest. Well, I can't even say chapter one. There are no chapter numbers. They're just titles. So, but we're at the beginning. New Harmony Today, A, glim a Glimpse in Summer, 1940. Let me see if I'm going to be able to. I'm going to try and finish this today and finish this in one episode. Could run a little long. Okay. You come to old New Harmony by a creaking ferry. It has been operating for 50 years, according to the sign on the iron bell at the Wabash shore. This is a land of rolling hills on either side of the river. Sandpipers are continual migrants between two shores. Primitive, they build no nests but holes and mud banks, so that the hills seem coated with golden birds. Likely enough, there are two blind mules as other passengers on the ferry and tied to them like a cart behind them translucent logs of the fallen birch. Likely enough, the ferryman will never speak a word. Far down the river, a barge turns toward the bend of the hills, the bargeman standing with his legs spread wide against a cloudless sky. Time passes as the ferry creaks beneath the superfluous toll, super, yeah, superfluous toll bridge. The government's extravagance, for few cross it. Ascending a path that seems to lead nowhere, you come at last to new harmony, a disappointment. The past is an intangible in Indiana, you find, as in other parts of these abstract United States, a filling station where there were two utopias, Mr. Babbitt, where there was an angel. Surely, a Mexican town would be more flagrant in its tragic beauty, but this is a grayness, and the people are not picturesquely blind, standing outside golden-domed cathedrals or kneeling before a Christ with Indian hair. Our ancestors always hurried, left little evidence of their existence, if one discounts intangibles a sundial, an apple a day, an angel in the forest. New Harmony, once so supernatural, was, has subsided into easy naturalism, like that suggested by James Whitcomb Riley's poetry. This is, after all, the pocket country, hemmed in by two mighty rivers, the Wabash and Ohio, and some twenty miles as the crow flies from that large metropolis, Evansville. Okay, if you see Evansville, <laughs> that's not true. Have you ever seen Evansville on a map? Yeah, I've been to Evansville. It is not a metropolis. Uh, it's a good-sized town, but yeah, not a metropolis. So I think that's being sarcastic. A pottery center and wharf for lazy steamboats, mostly imaginary. It is difficult to visualize a secluded area as once the scene of two utopias. 
Like the Cartesian split between body and soul, the Rappite, a scriptural communism, founded by Father George Rapp, a German peasant who believed his people to be future angels, the Owenite, founded by Robert Owen, an English cotton lord, who believed all men to be machines. The end result of Father Rapp's community, a celibate order, was heaven, and the end result of Robert Owen's, while also incalculable, was the British labor movement. New Harmony has a charminess has a charm escaping these and other categories. In 1940, it seemed like a good place to spend one's old age or in or visit one's old Aunt Mary, the non-existent character. School did or did not keep, and nobody cared, and the teacher was pretty, presumably. People did or did not wash on Monday, iron on Tuesday. There were old-fashioned flowers in abandoned lots and gardens, dusty blue morning glories trailing among stinkweeds, spires of yellowing lilies that seemed to flourish in neglect. There was a feeling of both tedium and voluptuousness. Gradually, in spite of the ten-cent store, which was cobwebbed and insubstantial, the present faded, became of a texture with the past, as if today were only the conglomerate of all our yesterdays. Every item implied, however, desolation, since nothing lingers so like the memory of failure, especially if it has sought the extreme perfection. There were outhouses leaning with thyme, and a water tower covered with ivy, suggesting fairy lands forlorn, right in the heart of the green corn country. There was an abandoned Catholic church with a belfry where swallows had built their nests and fluttered back and forth like bells. There was nothing certain, but illusion in every facet, a feeling of the impermanence of man, for in New Harmony he had always been a tramp, the impermanence of two utopias as whimsical as himself. There was no commonplace of all mankind, but differentiation, mysteries unfathomable. Frame houses put up hastily by Sears, Roebuck, looked out on a Hebrew and Greek maze symbolizing man's transience on this makeshift earth, also put up hastily. Others faced on the footprints of an abiding angel, big-footed. Peculiarities multiplied, perhaps because New Harmony, which was the cradle of two utopias, is literally, if not figuratively, cut off from the outside world and introverted as a nude drunk with memories. It is as if this pocket country were a little planet whirling far out alone in space. Almost every citizen is aware of New Harmony's strangeness. What far from average people have walked these streets in old time? An angel, like a hermaphrodite butterfly, a butterfly catcher, a Daniel Boone of the Infinite, a finite Elijah, a herb doctor, Lot's wife, many pastorals, many mechanics, clouded dreamers, a celibate breeder of horses. Poor yahoos, the spirit of nature, rational man, irrational men, patriarchs, undertakers. Nor does this list, inclusive as it seems, exhaust the possibilities of 19th century salvationism, as expressed by two utopias. The first, forerunner of a new Jerusalem, exclusive and arbitrary. The second, forerunner of a new moral world, to encompass all nations and all governments. Two utopias comprehended within a half-mile square, surrounded by a vast wilderness, past, present, and future. However, abstrusely, the burning of Rome, city planning, explosion of stars, a new calendar, anarchy, a new Jerusalem, repression, expansion, moneyless Eden, ex exaltation of pearls, a three-hour working day, exaltation of horses, infinite regress, the United Nations of Earth, the many, the few, Lucifer, lotus eaters, the following, the falling of autumn leaves, the myths of narcissists, good dentistry, many fictions. So that such perfectionist orders, which would have 
excluded much of mistaken life, seemed mistaken life itself, with all its infinite variety. It was impossible, even in 1940, to visit at length the New Harmony without catching some of the spirit of the place. Few who came were unappreciative of this rare gem, a frontier between eternity and time. Question. What is the nature of experience? What dream among dreams is reality? Man is the creator of those values by which he lives and perhaps dies. They are not handed down from heaven, usually. On the banks of the Wabash, early in the 19th century, two utopias attempted to erect, each in its own way, the character of the extreme perfection socially considered. They were gone but not forgotten in 1940, like an advertisement in an, in an obituary column. New Harmony has ever loved its dead. In shops on brewery and church streets, golden golden rain tree shoots were for sale, six for 25 cents, and guaranteed to grow in any temperate latitude unless high in the mountains. Sign of the new moral world envisioned by the Owenites, who believed that they had heard the death rattle of all competitive trades and conflicting systems. Sign of the predecessors and perhaps of their successors as well, two dolls labeled father and mother rap looked out from under a bell-shaped glass like saints or preserved flowers such pitiful dolls remind us only that man cannot exist in a vacuum that the concepts which do not fit into his category are never really abandoned how erect even in heaven to say nothing of earth community without impedimenta ties relationships how translate mr babbitt into an angel who will not have the old attitude of man or at least the many faceted eyes of a fly I'm drinking water. Uh, just to let you know, if you hear slurping, I had to give up soda, so I just drink coffee, tea, and water. Um, there seemed, in 1940, except for the trade in rain tree pods and dolls, not much other business. Two utopias cannot account for new harmony and amorphous material. Perhaps as in similar river towns, the beauty operator added to her income by painted corpses after hours. If so, her idea of happiness was doubly complicated. The undertaker was a shepherd, almost biblical, an apparition out of new harmony's past. The undertaker's was the only dynasty in new harmony now. He hoped that the old sick sister would not go on at lambing, which was his busy season. If death was his vocation, life was his avocation. He was always on the way from the grave to the cradle, so to speak. <sighs> would not go at lambing. Oh, okay, would not go at lambing. So lambing, I'm assuming, means that... Um, I'm assuming he raises sheep, and that's the time a lot of them give birth. I'm I'm just going to have to assume that. At first I thought it was like shearing, but no, that that's totally different. It has to be lambing. That they're all the, the lambs are, are dropping babies. I think that's what that means. Uh, all of New Harmony depended directly or indirectly upon his many expertises. Unfortunately, he was the kindest man on earth, holding a string of mortgages he could not foreclose. He would not foreclose. He buried everybody. There were other antiquities. The Owenite Chemical Laboratory, with its Gothic spire awry, would have transferred happiness from the non-human elements to human society a long time ago. It was empty now of any experiment but Carolyn Dale's sewing basket, lined with blue silk, and pictures of fat Welsh pigs in gilded frames carved with acorns. Pictures, not hers, of the planets whose spirits are women in draperies of clouds, admirably adjusted, a few cobweb test tubes, also, 
To express the idealistic science of the vacuum which some had dreamed of filling up, the roof leaked. Father Rapp looked forward to no 20th century whatever. There would have been, if he had had his way, not a chance of Oscar Wilde's trial or other scandals of the late 19th century. Not a chance of prize fighters May West in the 20th. The work of regeneration, according to Robert Owen, must be done immediately, else the people of the 20th century could not be blamed for their characters being ill-formed. The events of this world are not admirably connected, or if they are, that harmony was not obvious and new harmony. There were, in 1940, all kinds of contrasts. Two utopias, like cornfields covered over with water, families lived in the monastic rapite houses, babies squalled where rapite celibates had slept profoundly. There were to have been no wars, according to either utopia, and an end to ethical confusions as well. In 1940, however, there was a rumor of oil under the peaceful cornfields, a possibility of munitions blowing up the whole world, at which time every man would have a chicken in the pot, a good five-cent cigar, as Teddy Roosevelt had promised, or had he. And he was a great lion hunter, possibility of gods dissolving the world, at which time every man would have a star in his crown on the banks of the Wabash far away. These, however, were matters to be engaged in during idle moments, when there was nothing to do but imagine the unimaginable. As a whole, regarding immediate prospects, the people were suspicious of violent change. New harmony was new harmony, a a tautology, the same as to say that bread is bread, and a rose by any other name would never smell as sweet. Few, unless they were at death's door, gave more than a passing thought to the nature of ultimate happiness. Most people were happy enough if they could just keep the wolf from the door. Most people liked Franklin D. Roosevelt unless they owned real estate or aspired to. A man was lucky to own the ground under his feet. The majority in the pocket country were tenant farmers and did not reap the corn they sowed. They wanted little, enough to eat, enough to wear, a decent roof, a few of the things which are not of this world, an automobile, and an automobile, which seemed unlikely. The few rich were sonorous Republicans with uniformed ebony chauffeurs, no other Negroes allowed, castles in Spain, private chapels in Oregon, manure on their boots when they came back home, but they never came. They were, in fact, problematical as angels. As for communism, nobody would object to it if it could be Christian, like the Society of Christ and the Fishermen. There would be more pence for Peter the Fisherman and less for Peter the Pope, as the saying goes. Christ, it was well known, had struck water from the living rock and had fed the poor with quail. Quail shooting was still good in the pocket country, plenty of quail in the Rapide graveyard, for example. But where had a real communism ever been tried outside the Bible? Millennium might be just around the corner but as to man's making it, that seemed highly unlikely. Nobody could remove the flaws from the universe without destroying the universe, the undertaker said, and an old plow was better than none, and many a blind horse had its usefulness. For most people, Hitler was not quite a menace as yet, not nearly so much as Hale Selassie, Haley Selassie? Who is that? Who had somehow contrived to capture their imagination? Alright, let me look that up. I have no clue who that is. Hale Selassie. Former Emperor of Ethiopia. 
Huh, well, who knew? So how do you pronounce this? Amharic. Guatemala, Haile Selassie. Haile Selassie, born Tafari Makonan, was emperor of Ethiopia from 1930 to 1974. He rose to power as regent plenipotentiary of Ethiopia for Empress Zwidu from 1916. Haile Haile Selassie is widely considered a defining figure in modern Ethiopian history and the key figure of Rastafari, a re- oh, a religious, and the, and the key figure of Rastafari, a religious movement in Jamaica that emerged shortly after he became emperor in the 1930s. He was a member of the Solomonic dynasty, which claims to trace lineage to Emperor Menelik I, believed to be the son of King Solomon and Makada, the Queen of Sheba. Seriously? Well, that's a good-looking guy. He's in dress uniform in 1973. Halal Selassie attempted to modernize the country through a series of political and social reforms, including the introduction of the 1931 Constitution, its first written constitution, and the abolition of slavery. He led the failed efforts to defend Ethiopia... During the Second Italo-Ethiopian War, the Italian occupation, he traveled to Sudan to assist in coordinating the anti-fascist struggle in Ethiopia. Uh, he dissolved Federation Eritrea, Eritrea, Eritrea. Uh, as well, fighting to prevent succession. <laughs> Huh. Well, I just think that's so cool. How did he develop? I, I want to. I want to do see the Rastafarian. Anyways, I'm just looking this all up on a uh, uh, Google uh, Wikipedia. That's so cool. Okay, wait. Rastafarian. Where? That's what I want to see. So there is like a huge. Thing. Oh man. Okay. Uh, this dude's got a lot of history on him. Anyways, very interesting. Oh, all right. Leave it to Margaret Young to pop something like that on here. I had no idea. Stalin, in spite of propaganda, was sufficiently remote, like the Arctic or another planet. The barber objected to his lavender shirt, but otherwise the Russian bear had little plausibility. A Gallup poll would have shown Gandhi as the most favored world character, a Christ-like man who would let the grass grow high and the crows roost in his cornfields, and an old tax collector would ever find him out. Even Gandhi, however, would have come in second to Glaucus, the itinerant sewer cleaner, profane as the earth itself. All right, I don't know who Glaucus is. And I understand everyone.
Huh. Okay, well, I'm not finding a person. I'm finding a plant. I don't know. Okay. In general, they would leave the world as it goes. If they had not shared its fortunes, why should they share its misfortunes? Nobody wanted to change New Harmony, decay having its own remorseless attraction, and nothing so beautiful in any season as the autumn of man's soul, the cere, the yellow leaf. Even the rapite maze <clears throat> had been more wonderful before restored to its approximate position, so that now boys and girls spooned there almost irre irreligiously, and the policeman under his tropical hat had that problem on top of every other. Aged simplicity stood with its back against the wall, opposing every threat upon its own status quo. Even the mute could wax eloquent on the subject of New Harmony's cherry orchards and immunity to the blight of progress, discounting the WPA housing project, discounting to the end of the world, which had long been, which had long been looked forward to. While relief might be necessary, a health officer seemed excessive in a valley populous with doves and men who had seen ninety summers. The health officer was a puny fellow with moths in his stomach and could not lift a ten-pound weight as Glaucus could, and Glaucus had never been to school. Besides, who had ever seen a germ? The one real improvement, granting even that President Roosevelt's intentions might be good, and the Secretary of Agriculture not too far off the track, would be for God to intervene, breaking off history like a rotted branch on the tree of life. At such a time, there would be white angels on white horses in Posey County, and not a tax collector or health officer in the entire creation from star to shining star, perhaps not even a flea, and everything would be as it had been, excluding imperfections. Meanwhile, for want of a better occupation, some bet on the horses which were running at Dade Park, this side of the Ohio and Kentucky. But it was a long trip, so they would just stay at home and bet on imaginary horses with imaginary money, much, which is a much safer sport. There was a fellow who owed another fellow a hundred purely fanciful dollars and skulked in shadows when he considered the immense debts he had piled up. Anyone would have thought he was the government. New Harmony persisted, old, unresurrected, unredeemed, perhaps, yet curiously, unreasonably wonderful. A whore, where there had been an angel, whiskey, where there had been prohibition. It was good that the Rapites had left the black locust tree standing and that the Owenites had planted those golden rain trees, the fastest growing tree in the world, which used much used in Chinese graveyards because of their lantern lantern shaped leaves. Otherwise, both utopias might have been forgotten, though advertised as remembered. Utopias of the past seemed, in spite of their shade trees, not so tangible, finally as Miss Hobie and Miss Ducky, old sisters carrying their feather pillows to the show where the seats were hard to sit on, sneaking in to see Clark Gable. All mankind seemed not so real as one lonely, frostbitten character, like the man who died with his feet in the ashes of the cold stove last winter, or was it winter before last? He was not missed until spring, when the saloon-keeper remembered him that he had been, not been coming in for quite a while. New Harmony is full of such remarkable characters, each with a history. There was the man who stole the undertaker's hog last winter. He cut off the head and throwed it into a well, and dragged the body over the smooth snow through a world of fairy crystal. That was how they tracked him right to his own door, a sheep's house in a field of ghostly thistle. They thought maybe a woman had been killed by a man from Illinois. It was only the undertaker's hog, though, as usual. So he spent six weeks in a nice warm jail, repenting, and ate three hogs, the undertaker said, and read all the back numbers of true detective stories, the policeman said. There was also old Thomas, a Kentuckian who got to New Harmony, 
God knows how. He slept in the room at the tavern where Robert Owen used to sleep when this was Utopia. There was a hole widened in the floor. Everybody worried for fear old Thomas would step through before the government could get around to repairing the floor, which was historical. He never did, and neither did the government. The hole is still there. He would go down and tell his secrets to the Wabash River where a loudspeaker attached to a ford, like a loudspeaker attached to a ford. He was as mean as a woodpecker, but everybody pitied him, for he expressed what everybody felt. He was like a public voice of conscience. He drowned himself in a bathtub one night when he came home from the river. There was also old Joshua, famous for his teeth, the length and breadth of Posey County, that, and the Republican Party. He had seen those teeth pictured in a catalog, inlaid with gold, smooth as pearls in a row, guaranteed to last a lifetime. So when he wrote for a harness and a curry comb, he put in his order, as a kind of afterthought, that they should send him along a pair of medium-sized human teeth. When they came, they did not fit. No teeth was made, he said, to fit his peculiar mouth, as hollow as a cavern. He carried his teeth ever after in his left-hand pocket, as if they were a watch to tell the time by, and would take them out and say, What hour is it? His teeth were a huge joke. The fisherman sat weaving his hooped nets under the shade of the prickly hedge apple. He was glad to be where he was. He went to Chicago once and did not like it. He preferred the earth, which was turning on its axis, although slowing up, he said. As for himself, yes, he was happy, for happiness is the instinct of the universe. He didn't give a straw in the wind for all your utopias. The corruptible had not yet put off corruption, nor had the hills dissolved like mist and fire. If things got too bad, there would be a grand Methodist revival, a new outcropping of stars and men. Meanwhile, the catfish were abiding, just as many fish in the river as ever was caught. The same with human beings. Also, he heard that Charlie Chaplin was playing tonight on the screen, the gold rush, for which he would pay with a string of fish. He liked Charlie, a spider that crawls on top of a glacier, and when the glacier cracks, Charlie didn't, don't know the difference. Or, if a mule comes to Charlie's dinner party instead of a lady who has been invited, why, he entertains the mule. Everything turns out all right, just because Charlie is so, so confused. It was all in all a beautiful day, the somnolent August booming with the buzz of bees, the cause of crows, the spinsters numerous as hollyhocks. Life seemed to be able to take life in its stride, a merry bachelor observed. There was in every street the smell of honeysuckle and new-baked bread. There were prim little girls in their parasols, and little boys with the seats of their breeches torn, the brown skin twinkling through. There was a feeling that any man might become the subject of American mythology, for no reason but that he went barefoot or left his hat in a cornfield. Nothing seemed to run according to schedule. There was a pregnant woman, eating an ice cream cone. I don't know who done it, she said over and over again, with the bewildered look of a large, gross child. But who could blame her, in a town which had been dedicated to its rapite era, to the extinction of that two-legged animal, man? Honestly, nobody could. Any humanity, everybody said, better seemed better than none. At least that was <clears throat> what the shopkeeper said, speaking for a mythological everybody. And he had seen much life from his place behind the counter. Only this morning, a teamster from Hobstadt, a Jehovah's Witness, a moron, old Doc, a geologist with his hat full of flowers, and a man who hated his mother, loved his grandmother, and cried at the mention of little children. What had they argued about but Republicans, Democrats, God, the housing project, the end of the world, Joe Lewis, the best bull, the beginning of time, alfalfa, Mr. Wilkie's chances, except that the man who loved little children just kept crying into his beer.
That night, there would be dancing at the saloon and under the table, babies in market baskets, little sleepy papooses, and an old dog licking the slime of beer from the floor and a tinny music in the slot machine. That night, on lonely cut-off island, a preacher would predict the second coming of one, Jesus Christ, the King of kings, who cometh in a great cloud with glory, and who washeth away all sins, and who maketh the old to be young as newborn lambs. Only a few would listen, feeling superior to their horse-bidding neighbors, who did not know what was going to happen unless they could get on the WPA housing project or something. Father Rapp long ago said that there would be a poisonous gas like the dews from Jehovah, a conflagration covering the whole wide earth. No iota would escape destruction. Such was God's despair of man. Still, caught against the spikes of the thorn bush, a little goat cried and cried in 1940, for the world had never really ended. It had not even been divided into two parts good and evil. The world milkweed multiplied with charming ignorance of God's error in prolonging mortal history. Spiders ate flies, swallows ate spiders, and the hawk ate swallows. Dusty hollyhocks grew up high at the door of the Rapite fortress. Dust had gathered inside thick as flower, flour in the flour mill. Rabbits ran in the Rapite maze, a public park. The Rapite underground passage, which had spread like roots of an infernal tree beneath these meadows, was covered over by God's handkerchief, the green grass, signposts, however, marking the approximate position of exit entrance to these Dantesque chambers. The Rapite sundial measured the shadow of the Rapite wall, just next to a Bull Durham tobacco sign, but no ironic juxtaposition this, like the golden rose of the celibates, above a schoolhouse door where little children droned like bees. Near a house, where a few ruins of Pompeii were carefully sheltered, there were the footprints of an angel who descended to Rapite Harmony and who left this evidence of his incorporeal extension, and a doctrine of heaven quite irreconcilable with earth. There were fewer evidences of the Owenite. A stone's throw from the angel's footprints, however, stood the tomb of Thomas Say, Owenite, who sought nothing supernatural but the spirit of nature, a stainless woman revealed in the aspect of the blackberry lily, the false foxglove, the orange trumpet flower. Perhaps the two visions, Rapite and Owenite, supernatural and natural, must merge into one distinction by and by, like a maze where lovers walk. Perhaps not. Long grasses had grown in wheels and curves over the nameless graves of the Rapites themselves in their gay in their gray gowns, only one layer above an Indian burial ground, its warriors, squaws, papooses, pottery, and colored beads. When resurrection comes, will both racial groups emerge with tomahawks and hallelujahs? There was no resurrection as yet, no winged being of air and light, but only the shy quail and the long grasses behind a red brick cemetery wall, only the usual lovers of the maze. No sky rolling back, no coming of Christ on a golden throne upheld by cherubim, but only a lonely crow, monogamous bird, and an airplane on some mysterious mission of its own. The advertisement of Lucky Strikes are riding in that sky. So that's her idea of, which just is lyrical and and gorgeous. Like, now that I'm reading, like I said, I've already read it, but it's like I haven't read it. <laughs> Starting all over again. That's like, that's, a, that's, I think it's just a great introduction. Like, how do you capture the history of a place and and she's only doing a very small chunk of history of New Harmony, um, which only is covering the uh, utopias that Rapp and Owen tried to build, uh, one after the other on the same uh, plot of land, I believe. 
So, I mean, just to to encompass all the different characters that live in the, and I talk care. I say characters because of, it's all the people that live there, but uh, their uniqueness. I mean, she captures their uniqueness. Uh, the small town quirkiness, um, I guess, is what it would be. And she captures all of that brilliantly and just trying to give this, uh, trying to uh, to give a sense and a feel of the place that's that's gray and run down. And, um, you know, how does that compare back to the time when it was, what, what, when these two communities uh, existed, so... So yeah, great introductory chapter of New Harmony. I don't know. Did you feel like you got a, a picture, a sense of, of New Harmony? I, I, it made me want to go. <laughs> it makes me want to look up how far I am from New Harmony, Indiana and go check it out. Um, yeah, pretty cool. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.